Hey everybody, I'm Janelle, Halloween harlot. Hi everyone, it's Morgan. I am your spooky season slut. All right, I know we don't usually do like paranormal ghost stories, but since it is October, we're changing it up a little bit. We're gonna be telling you some true ghost stories. We're actually recording from a cemetery right now. If you hear any band music, that's because there's, like, a football game, like, on the other side of the cemetery. But, uh, we're feeling already a little bit spooked. Yeah, it's dark, and, um, on the way in, I decided it would be a good idea to mention that there could be, like, a predator here waiting to kill us, so. I wasn't scared until you said that. I wasn't either until I thought about it, so. All right. All right, take it away, Morgan. Tonight, I'm going to tell the true story and continual hauntings of what is known as the Chop Chop House in Boise, Idaho. Oh, I'm already have chills. I'm scared to tell it. Me too. Like, I feel, I already feel (laughs) so unsettled. (laughs) Okay. It was 1987 on a hot and muggy summer night. Preston Murr was spending the evening with two of his friends, Darren Cox and Daniel Rogers when an unexpected fight broke out between the three of them. It's unknown what exactly started the fight that night, but it's speculated that it may have been regarding some missing guns. The fight was an awful scene. Darren, Cox, and Daniel Rogers overtook Preston. Preston was fighting for his life. One of the men had a gun that they had turned on him. Preston was shot in the shoulder. Preston did his best to fight off both of them and even made a great attempt to flee, ending up on the neighbor's front porch, knocking on the door in a grave attempt to get help and save his life. He stood there frantically, pounding his knuckles on the door, probably screaming out for anyone to help him, heart pounding in his chest, as he makes what he already knows is his last attempt (sighs) at finding a way out of this horror scene he was in. The neighbor did not come out in time. When he did open the door, no one was there, but a pool of blood on the front porch. The neighbor called the police and explained that what he had heard and saw that night. Unfortunately, it was too late. In fact, the neighbor had to call the police a second time in the morning before anyone was sent out to the scene. Are you shitting me? The police showed up at the house and found an absolute horror on arrival. Police found blood on the street and on the front door of the neighbor's house, where Preston had run to the night before. They also saw smeared blood on the floorboards of the front porch of the house where the murder occurred. These blood marks led down into the basement. The basement is where Daniel had shot Preston in the back of the head and the room that both men used as a workspace to dismember his body. (gasps) Preston was cut into 13 pieces using an axe and some knives. Then the two men placed his body parts into various Ziploc bags that were found in the kitchen. The two men who acted out these heinous crimes were apprehended at the Brownlee Reservoir after disposing of the body. 
the body parts were not found and recovered till a week later. Over the years, many people have lived their lives in this home. One of the girls who used to live in the house after the murder had said that the basement is such an evil and dark space with a heavy feeling hanging in the air. It can feel as though the whole room is closing in on you. It feels like you've been holding your breath for a long time and you just need to breathe, but it's impossible. She claims that there is an intense, immediate need to leave when you enter the space. Other owners have explained that the feeling is always that it's not their home. What an unsettling feeling to have in a space that should feel like yours. In the early 2000s, this home was used as a fraternity house. Many fraternity brothers have claimed to have seen blood dripping down the walls in the basement. But the strangest tale was submitted to 107.9 radio station by a man named Dan. And this claim goes well beyond the basement. According to his story, one night, Dan and his friends thought they heard someone trying to break into the house. Then when they went out to the front porch to check things out, no one was there. After looking around the front yard, Dan turned to face the house and saw a big black oily looking thing in the window of the bedroom. He remembers seeing the shadowy figure move back from the window and towards the bedroom door before it disappeared. Shortly after, it reappeared outside in a mirror sitting on the porch. Dan watched as the ball of oily blackness moved down the large column of the porch, slowly growing in size until it took up the entire reflection of the mirror and moved right through him. It was the weirdest, most disturbing thing I have ever felt. And just typing this makes me feel it again. It's like ice fingers sinking into my shoulders, he said. The eerie feeling most everyone gets from the home is clear. Preston's soul may be locked into this home forever. The weighted feeling you get as you walk down the basement stairs the way one might feel while drinking a coffee on the front porch, as if someone is still there and they are never really alone. Many people will drive by with the feeling that if they look the right way at the right time, they will see a ghost looking back at them through the window. Some who have lived in the house say that it's not haunted at all, but I for one will not be staying there to find out. Morgan, I kept looking over my shoulder the whole time. Like, oh I was really good. Anyway, oh, I just kept picturing the guy like across the street at those houses across the street, banging on the door. Oh my god, and it it's freaked me terrifying. out so much. Damn. Okay, this is kind of a bop though. That's a weird dinging noise. You hear it? I'm assuming, is it like a xylophone? Or like the Grim Reaper, like tapping his <laughs> his scythe against one of the gravestones? You know, just jamming. I think I just need to do it once around. Okay, that's probably a good idea. Dude, this is fucking freaky. Okay, but my dance is on point. 
That's very scary. I don't think he should have been released. No. Ever. He's just out there. He could be behind us right now. That I'm gonna have nightmares of that that oily figure popping up everywhere. That's so scary. But if it was a, was it a frat house boy that reported that? Um, they didn't say who they were. They just called into the radio station. It mm. could have been. I'm just wondering um, if maybe he was on like acid light. or something. <laughs> acid. Did they do acid back in the 2000s? Yeah, maybe it wasn't as popular. Now it's all right. about fentanyl. That's what my grandma tells me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gigi. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so mine requires a little bit of backstory, so um, I hope you're ready. My story takes place practically in the backyard of where I grew up. Oh, no. So, Anne Morgan, how long did you live in Louisville, Ohio? I was there for two years. Okay, so yeah, this is a little bit of a local one for where we are. So this takes place at Molly Stark Sanatorium. Oh. Molly Stark is pretty notorious. I'm so freaked out. I can't already. stop looking around now. Um, I, we know multiple people that have broken into Molly Stark. Oh yeah, people when we were in high school. I never, I never was ballsy enough, but. Molly Stark Sanatorium was opened in 1929 to care for the pandemic of tuberculosis patients in Stark County, Ohio. The hospital was placed in a quiet lot at the edge of the woods. It was a beautiful piece of architecture in a rural town. It's designed integrating the latest philosophies in tuberculosis care. The open corridors between wards allowed nurses to wheel patients to get fresh air, and the building embraced a wide courtyard where patients could stroll in the sunlight. The Spanish Revival style seemed less hospital than a state, with its intricate colored plaster work, three-story columns and arches, and various towers topped in stucco tiles. Tuberculosis sufferers came to Molly Stark for a holistic and restful recuperation. Whenever I'm there, I feel like I can picture the patients walking those, like, open corridors. Mm -hmm. It's so eerie. Our friend, Allie, her mother's, either her mother's mother or her mother's grandmother, was at Molly Stark for tuberculosis. That's really interesting. Back in the day. It's kind of cool that we know people like in the area that were actually utilizing this. Upon admission, the patient would begin their stay on the top floor of the hospital with the most ill of the patients. Here, they received intensive care and could be accompanied by staff onto the rooftop terraces and balconies to rest. As they began to recover, they would be transferred to the second floor, where they could hang out with the other patients in the library, listen to the radio, or play table games. The most stable patients were on the ground floor, so that they could roam around the grounds when they wanted. According to the prevailing theory at the time, tuberculosis tuberculosis patients needed fresh air, sunlight, and mild activity for recovery. Patients were often there for months. As new antibiotics were developed, the need for the sanatorium decreased, and the remaining TB patients at Molly Stark were transferred to a nursing home. It functioned as a small community hospital with departments for pediatrics, mental disabilities, drug and alcohol rehab, and a skilled nursing section. 
It finally closed its doors in 1995. The Stark County Metropolitan Narcotics Unit was housed in a wing of the building in the early 2000s, and it became part of the Stark Parks system in 2009. All right, so here I'm gonna go into my story. I took a lot of liberties with this. I combined a lot of accounts from multiple people, and then I went a little off the rails. I got a little too into it. I'm a little scared right now. I'm also scared. And like everybody, please don't bully me. Like I'm not a horror writer. I just wanted to make a fun story and combine all the, the accounts I heard. So I like the creativity and I'm ready. Yeah. Gird your loins, everyone. <gasps> what? There's somebody here. Did they drive in or are they driving out? Okay, I think they're going the other way. There's a, there's exit the other way, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, God, you can long, drive through. How long have they been here? Have they been sitting there the whole time? Uh, I don't know. They got like teenagers smoking pot in the cemetery. Oh my God, but they were right there and we didn't even notice. <laughs> oh shit, my pants. scary that was actually terrifying well maybe they were listening to our stories yeah because our stories fucking rock (sighs) (laughs) god this is the scariest part the drama okay okay okay. Okay. ever since the heroin raid a week ago in his 15 years at the stark county sheriff's office He'd never seen so many narcotics in one bust. And that meant hours of processing evidence and mountains of paperwork. He usually didn't mind working late. He wasn't married and his weird roommate spent most nights watching the black and white movie channel on their only TV. He was a lot less enthused now that the narcotics unit had moved to the abandoned Molly Stark building. He'd heard the stories of spirits drifting down the hallways and caught more than a few teenage ghost hunters trying to climb into the windows of the old tuberculosis wards. He wasn't one to buy into ghost stories, but he couldn't help feeling unsettled every time he walked into the building. Even his coworker's narcotics dog could tell something wasn't right. Gary would catch her staring down the halls, hackles raised, at someone only she could see. Sometimes she would start howling like the devil himself was at the end of the hall. One October evening, Gary was reading over his reports as the last rays of autumn sunlight slipped below the tree line. The silence was punctuated by the shudder of the pipes or the groan of the boiler, pulling his focus to imaginings of decaying figures in vintage hospital gowns. We're just getting started. He straightened the stack of papers on his desk and pressed his palms into his eyes. After staring at the typed pages and scrawled handwriting for the past two hours, he practically had double vision. Maybe it was time to hang it up for the night. Gary, called a voice from the outside the office door. What? He groaned back. He glanced at the clock. It was 6.45. He thought everyone had left by 5.30, but he recognized that voice as belonging to his coworker, Mitchell. What the hell are you still doing here, man? Gary called out. Mitchell had only been working with the narcotics unit for six months, and he wasn't exactly one to go out of his way to pick up extra responsibilities. In fact, he was usually the first one to leave. Gary, Mitchell called out again. Gary sighed and rose from his desk. 
Just come in the office. I'm in the middle of something, he grumbled. He peered into the darkened hallway, scanning the cracked tile flooring and once sterile-looking hospital walls. Mitchell was nowhere to be seen. Mitchell, what do you want? I don't have time for your bullshit. This wouldn't be the first time Mitchell had taken advantage of the fact that they worked in an abandoned hospital and tried some kind of jump scare. The kid thought he was some sort of comedian. Then, he heard a sound coming from the floor above. Metallic scraping sound, like someone was redecorating their room. He swore under his breath and retrieved a flashlight from his office. None of the lights worked upstairs and he was not in the mood to poke around in the creepy building at night. The county wanted his unit to survey the building a couple times a week before they went home, thanks to all the curious high school intruders. No matter how tough any of the guys wanted to seem, they always went in pairs. Gary climbed the mildewy stairway, sweeping his flashlight along the walls as he went. The second floor was a long hall punctuated by unused hospital rooms. The drywall was already starting to break away and papers littered the floor. The first time Gary explored the building, he was surprised to see how much was left behind at the hospital. Beds, cabinets, and exam equipment still cluttered the rooms. Desk drawers at the nurse's station were still filled with pens and report sheets, as if the staff might come back tomorrow and need them. It was almost as if everyone had left one day and just never come back. Gary entered the first room across from the stairwell, his best guess to where that dragging sound was coming from. The light from his flashlight fell upon a spindly metal chair, then a rusty spring bed frame, then the window panes covered with cardboard and duct tape, then another bed frame. Something about this room wasn't right to Gary. Suddenly, it came to him. The beds in all the rooms usually flanked the windows, but the bed on the right side of the room had been pushed up next to the door. A royal of, un of uneasiness grew in his gut. He and Mitchell had just done the hospital sweep yesterday. Everything had been in its place. He examined the floor between the bed and the window. Sure enough, two long streaks cut through the dust and grime on the tiles. Had it always been so cold in here? Grow the fuck up, Mitchell, Gary yelled. I want to lock up for the night. Another scraping sound came from across the hallway. Gary bolted toward the noise, hoping to catch the perpetrator in the act. He shone his light over the peeling walls. No one was there. He, tr he tried to ignore the growing chill in his core. Gary. This time, it didn't sound like Mitchell. This time, it was a low-pitched growl that he could feel in his chest. He couldn't move. Every hair on his body stood on end. Every cell in his body focused on that voice in the hallway. He wished the heartbeat in his ears would quiet so he could listen for the intruder. Slowly, he turned around and crept into the doorway. His breath quickened. His grip tightened around the flashlight. He had to look. He shone the light toward the direction of the sound. Nothing. A sigh of relief escaped him. He turned to the other end of the hallway. There, by the stairwell, was a figure. A tall man with translucent skin and a high-waisted brown suit, the kind he'd only seen in his roommate's black-and-white movies. Its eyes were dark, almost black, and sunken into its head. Its hair was neatly combed, but its face looked gaunt, sickly. Gary felt his limbs slacken. The figure carefully stepped towards Gary. Its footsteps echoed in the hallway. It was growing closer, but Gary's feet suddenly were too heavy to lift. The creature's mouth dropped open. 
its papery lips cracking as though they had not been parted for decades. The smell of decaying flesh and the phlegmy breath of an ill person crashed into Gary. It extended one skeletal hand. By now, it was close enough for him to see the filth under its fingernails. The creature took a shuddering, wheezing breath. Gary was breathless, as if it had just sucked the air from his lungs. And then, the creature pressed its icy hand against his sternum. Pain seared through his chest. His lungs felt like they were shriveling inside him. Blood pooled in the back of his throat and trickled down his chin. The creature's eyes stared into his own, its face a reactionless mask. The last thing Gary heard was a low growl. We're still here. Gary awoke on the floor a few hours later in a pile of dust and drywall. He continued his position at the narcotics unit, but always somehow excused himself from the building inspections. He never told his coworkers what he saw. One evening, his supervisor had gone up on a building sweep alone after Gary claimed he had to make a phone call. 30 minutes later, he returned white-faced and dazed with a streak of blood at the corner of his mouth. The narcotics unit moved to a new location two months later. The county claimed the building had asbestos, which is why it was closed but could not be torn down. Gary knew that wasn't the truth. The creature had claimed his home back. Sometimes, after the lot had been turned into a county park, he went back at dusk to visit. And sometimes, from the window of his old office, the creature would visit too. way too good um okay so what parts did you like so you took a couple of different stories and like yeah. welded them together yeah none of the characters in here are real the so it was all real until we got to the part of the uh <laughs> the creature coming and putting his hand on him and cursing okay. him or whatever. But, like, the creature itself is something somebody had witnessed. Yes. The, so it was it was a man in a brown suit that they saw walking the halls. Don't of course, I made it scarier. Yeah. But all the other stuff, the dog, the beds, all of that's real. And the narcotics unit, obviously, just didn't, moved. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I Why found it. Why the hell would they use that place? I don't know. It's fucking asbestos. It's so creepy. They it was like they had asbestos before they moved, though. They had to have known. I know. I, it was the early two thousands. I guess I should have clarified that. It's, it was two thousand, early two thousands when this happened. Oh my god! Hope you guys shit yourselves tonight. Thanks for joining us. Happy Halloween. This is just not the vibe. I gotta be honest. We're going to have like 45 minutes of content and 40 of them are going to be this band. I don't know that we could go anywhere where you couldn't hear it though. We'll just go in my backyard. We could. We have to spoil the vibe. Oh, my basement. That's terrifying. That's pretty scary. Oh, my butt. Woo! Woo! We've got enough content here at least. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at official underscore plot twist pod. Music is courtesy of Matthew Modena and our resources are in the show notes.
Mm.